Welcome back to another episode of Results Don't Lie. I'm Sue Stanley, and I'm here with Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon of the Simon Law Firm. Great to see you guys again. Great to see you, Sue. Great to see you, too. This landmark case was several years ago, but your point when you took it on was to make a change in the way opioids are prescribed in America. What changes have happened since the Kuhn v. Walden verdict? I think on a few different levels, there have been some major changes. And I think our case has helped to contribute to some of those changes, but obviously there's different factors that have had to come into play. But I'm seeing better prescribing practices by physicians, first and foremost. And maybe that is because of better education. Maybe some of it is because of fear of a lawsuit like this. One of the biggest systemic changes I've seen is a change in policies and procedures set up at major hospital and healthcare provider systems that I think was in, a lot of it was directly as a result of them learning about this case. I know that St. Louis area healthcare provider systems specifically put in monitoring systems and checks on their electronic medical record systems um, and like uh, teams that would review high opioid prescription practices to try to curb this from happening anymore. So most professionals have to do continuing education courses to keep their licenses active. Lawyers have to do it. Doctors have to do it. That there was immediately seminars happening for these continuing education classes just for doctors individually and then risk managers putting on seminars with big PowerPoints about this case to say, hey, you guys might need to make some changes and make sure this isn't happening at your hospital systems. And I I started to see over the next few years an improvement in the the opioid prescribing practices. It still happens. It still certainly happens, but I think it's happening less often. And, And I think another change that I have seen is there's been kind of an explosion of recognition of this opioid use disorder as being synonymous with addiction. You know, patients who have been on opioids for a very long time, at least doctors having the willingness to confront that issue and recommend treatment, send them to someone who's more specialized or even reevaluate it entirely. That caused some some pushback, I think, from, you know, patients who have used these things for 20 years. It's hard after, you know, 10 years of taking these medications, hearing from your doctor that there's no scientific evidence that beyond three months that these things provide the patient any better benefit than Advil. That's a, that's a pardon the pun, but a really difficult pill to swallow. Uh, but doctors are doing it because that's the science. This led to a lot of subsequent cases, which we can't talk about the specifics of. But I've noticed in subsequent cases, when you start pouring through the medical records and the prescription practices, you can see a change in what the doctor is doing shortly after that Kuhn verdict and in the year or two after it, where you can see for a particular patient, they're ramping up, ramping up. And then some of them around that 2016, 2017 time period when this verdict happened, uh, they either suddenly cut the person off and said they weren't going to give them opioids anymore. And I've seen that as a pattern over and over again in these other cases where ramp up, ramp up, ramp up, middle of 2016, uh uh-oh, drop the patient, which you shouldn't do, or get them down and get them off opioids. From our perspective, or at least my perspective, I know Tim feels the same way as, you know, whether it's out of fear of liability or just having the issue brought to your attention and actually undertaking to learn it, regardless of the reason, I am very personally very glad that these changes are, you know, 
being enacted. It's really difficult for me sitting, you know, knowing everything I, I know about the opioid epidemic and how long it's persisted to think that big institutional healthcare providers would not have systems to track the amount of narcotics they're giving out into the community, and most of them did not. That is a, a major change and a major shift, actually requiring the provider and the prescriber to be accountable for the amount of narcotics that you're providing someone. And so now I think we are seeing uh, healthcare providers at least recognize that doses do matter because it, uh, there is no end of the road on chronic opioid use. It's just more and more and more and more and more. And, you know, recognizing that is a problem is a good thing. You know, Sue, that makes me want to bring up a point that still aggravates me. To Johnny's point, there's a way to track this stuff. Still to this day, every other state in the United States has a statewide prescription pill monitoring program except Missouri. At the time of this case, in 2016, all 49 other states had a prescription pill monitoring program. This case happened in Missouri, and still the Missouri legislature will not institute a prescription pill monitoring program in Missouri. And I think I know why, because the people who paid them money in lobbying don't want them to do it. But at least in the St. Louis area, within a year after this trial, and I think fairly shortly after it, St. Louis County at least did one. But that doesn't, it won't include, if people are doctor shopping, it's for the doctor's benefit too. If people are doctor shopping, they can go out to Washington County, and it's not going to be in that prescription pill monitoring program uh, database that exists for St. Louis County. And it really, really irks me. People should write to their congressmen and senators that they want a prescription pill monitoring program in Missouri. The substance of the argument, at least from the legislature in Missouri, is the government shouldn't have a, a database about Americans' health care, and it's very private. And I would say that might be a consideration if, you know, we haven't lost more Americans in the last 20 years than we did in Vietnam. Folks who are addicted, they're a danger to themselves, but also others. I mean, uh, I've seen fact patterns in this office where folks were able to get prescriptions from two different places after having overdosed. And then they're sent out with more narcotics because the doctor doesn't know. I mean, practitioners are busy. Do they make a phone call to the prescriber? They should. I think the standard care requires them to do it. Where two doctors know each other are treating the patient and neither one of them picks up the phone to find out if the other one's also giving opioids and a database would just have that in it. So imagine this fact pattern. There's a chronic prescriber. He's prescribing a, a very, very dangerous level of narcotics to a patient. That patient is hospitalized because of those narcotics. At the hospital, they don't have access to the primary prescriber's chart. They don't know, other than the history of the patient, what he's telling them, what he's taking, how he's getting it, what it's for, where's the last time he got it, when's the last time he got it, and you can't just take this person off of narcotics. Yeah, they're, right, they're withdrawing severely. And so you, you need to prescribe it to them, and so the hospital sends the person out of the, who just, you know, overdosed with more narcotics. And then they can go to a different hospital two days later, and they don't know. It's cra It's crazy. And I can tell you, major institutional health care providers, the people you would think should want to improve patient care and want this to not happen so they would know, there are local major institutional health care providers that have directly lobbied to prevent prescription pill monitoring program. And we've gotten some of their emails with their lobbyists. The reason is plaintiff's lawyers like us would use it 
to prove their liability in lawsuits? Well, the answer to that is, if you have the database and you use it, you shouldn't be doing something that allows us to prove liability in lawsuits. So it presumes you aren't going to utilize that tool and you're just going to ignore it. It's bewildering to me. Some people say it's just more red tape for the medical profession, but you know, a, a lot of things that are uh, have safety ramifications have red tape for good reason. Before you get on a roller coaster, they see how how tall you are, how much you weigh, are you you know, it, we're handing out narcotics, heroin. I mean, people know the effects of it. And, and, and we're talking about something that all forty nine other. It's not like we're correct, pushing for something correct. that no other state has done. The reddest states in the country have had this for years. That kind of goes back to one of the foundations of the reason that you took the Kuhn case was to realize that the system itself wasn't going to make these changes and that hopefully a case with some significant damages would get their attention. But still, that hasn't happened in Missouri. I think it has started to happen within the healthcare profession. They've started to do things, but it has not done anything to spur the legislature to do anything. If anything, the legislature is trying to enact laws to try to reduce liability for the healthcare provider, and that's their response to the Kuhn lawsuit, is to try to eliminate or make it almost impossible for the plaintiff to submit on punitive damages. Well, then you take away the fear factor that has spurred on the change for the good. Tort cases, a lot of people don't like them, and I can understand it. You hear about all these big verdicts and people getting a bunch of money, I understand it. But the tort system actually serves a purpose, and it is making the public and consumers safer. That is the, the purpose, to curb unsafe behavior that hurts and kills people. And the reason change started to be effectuated after Kuhn in this area is because doctors started learning about the potential of liability and healthcare systems started learning about the potential of liability for exactly this type of thing. And now the legislature in Missouri is actively doing things directly in response to this case to try to take away that risk. You think of punitive and you think of punishment. You know, no one's going to jail with a punitive damages award. No one's losing their license. It's money. They're going to have to pay a sum of money and that sum of money must be sufficient, and this is what the law says. It's sufficient to punish and deter the actor, but also others. So that's what the law is, and that's what the law has always been as far as you know. I've been practicing, and I don't know why we would make it harder for people to punish people uh, who consciously disregard safety. In the Kuhn case, the, the court actually said the words intentional. It was tantamount to intentional misconduct but, you know, whenever you're prescribing these pills, you better be intentional. How, how can you not be intentional? You're not accidentally prescribing somebody an opioid. And the reason punitive damages are so important in these cases is because there's so much of this going on that the criminal justice system, they have no chance of reining these folks in. I mean, what you have to do to lose your medical license is uh, beyond the bounds of anything that we could talk about on this show. Well, and the only doctors that ever face any kind of criminal repercussions are, is if they're using, like, the Medicare system. They're flooding it to patients with Medicare and the federal government, and thus all the U.S. taxpayers are paying for it. These doctors don't get really prosecuted at a state level. They don't. I mean, I don't think I'm no, aware of don't. one. They don't. It's always in the federal system, and it's always because of money. It's, 
you know, they're billing Medicare or Medicaid, you know, across state lines even. And so the criminal justice system, it's not going to regulate it. The regulatory system, the Board of Healing Art, is not going to regulate it. The tort system is the system that has a chance of actually sending this message of there needs to be some regulation. But, you know, if they don't do those things, they have to pay a judgment. And it, to take that away is, is really a shame for Missourians. You know, I mean, most people think probably any lawyer for any client can go in and ask the jury for punitive damages. And that's not the case. It's already a very, very high burden. So there's multiple levels you have to clear. You have to plead a higher, more egregious standard of conduct than just negligence. You have to plead that they like were recklessly indifferent to the patient, that they consciously disregarded their safety, that they were willful and wanton and malicious in their behavior, those types of things, which is already a very high burden. And before you even get to submit that to the jury, you have to put on all of your evidence on it, and there's a, a check with the court first. So you can't just come in and say, rile a jury up and ask him to hand out a big punitive damage award. The court does a, a check first where they review all of the evidence and all of the case law about whether it's sufficient that you clearly and convincingly proved that high level of conduct, which is like tantamount to criminal conduct, before they even let you submit it to the jury. And then there's 12 citizens of the state who decide if they think it is warranted. And then you go to the appellate court and they decide if you met the high level like the bar you have to meet for that evidence. And then it can go to the Missouri Supreme Court. So all those checks are in place. There are not frivolous punitive damage awards that people pay. There's just not. So it makes no sense to, if you can get a punitive damage award, it was justified. And so why would you want to, in your state, take that away? You're only taking it away for people who engaged in that conduct. Or the most egregious conduct. Yeah. It does nothing to help people who don't engage in egregious, reckless, consciously disregard for safety conduct. It only helps people who are doing that. And I don't understand why you would want to protect that behavior. Particularly a medical provider. Right. Who uh, consciously disregarding your safety. I didn't go to medical school, but I don't. I think that's the opposite of what they're supposed to do. I, yeah, I don't think that's what the Hippocratic Oath says. No, I don't think so either. And that was one of the most interesting things for me in the entire case was the jury agreed that there was egregious injury caused to the Coons, and they were awarded damages, and we think, okay, that's the end of the story. But then this decision, the punitive damages, were based upon two words that the defense tried to get it thrown out because reckless and excessive, did not meet the Missouri standard. That was astounding to me. $15 million could have been taken off the table. So here's what the law is in Missouri and how it is developed. The standard for punitive damages is, in a negligence case, you have to show conduct that's greater than just negligence. And it has long been a conscious disregard for or reckless indifference to safety of the yeah, plaintiff. Conscious disregard or complete indifference to the safety of the plaintiff or others. And such that it is tantamount to intentional wrongdoing. That's the language from the cases, that you're so consciously disregarding safety or in complete indifference of it that it is tantamount to intentional conduct where you knew there was a high probability of injury. So that's already a pretty high standard. What happened, um, I forget exactly when it happened. I think it might have been in the, in the 80s. But it started to be when there was this push for tort reform, 
okay? The proponents of that, the Chamber of Commerce, on behalf of insurance companies, they found their white knight, which is doctors with white coats. And so that's where they started, trying to create tort reform. Because doctors help us, and it's a pretty good person to set forward. People can rally behind wanting to protect doctors. I I get it. And they told the story of rising medical insurance costs, which is just factually untrue. So what they did is they, they passed a statute that the legislature may have thought changed that standard that existed for all cases, that conscious disregard standard for product liability cases, trucking cases, premises cases, whatever. And they said for for medical malpractice actions, it has to be willful, wanton, or malicious misconduct. Well, the issue is the courts had already been and continued to use those words interchangeably with the words that were already the standard. And so it's so rare for there to be a submissible punitive damages case in a medical malpractice case that the issue really wasn't coming up. It, it it's almost never happens Before Kuhn, I was aware of like maybe one in the last 20 to 30 years of a punitive damage case in a medical malpractice case that went up on appeal. So the issue of whether those meant different things didn't really come up because the courts weren't really ever deciding what the jury instructions should be. Uh, And the Missouri jury instruction is conscious disregard, complete indifference. And they were arguing in this case when we submitted that Missouri approved instruction, which are drafted by the Missouri Supreme Court. And if you don't use their approved instructions, it's automatically reversible error. So we said, we have to use this. And here's case law where these words are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. And they said, it can't mean the same thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have passed a statute. You use the wrong jury instruction for punitive damages. And then you should have given a different instruction in line with the statute of willful, wanton, and malicious. And we were saying, look at these cases they mean the same thing. What's the difference? We're going to go back and do it all over again. To present words to the jury that the court and the dictionary and everybody says mean the same thing. And so the appellate court agreed with us, and then the judgment was final. And what has happened since this case, which I alluded to earlier, is the Missouri legislature then took it into their own hands and upped the standard yet again and said, Conscious disregard for safety and complete indifference for safety evidence can never be used to prove punitive damages. You have to be able to show they meant to do intentional harm. So your doctor murdering you, you can get a punitive right. damage award. Anything short of that, uh, I mean. And if the doctor doesn't come in and admit that he intentionally tried to harm or kill your patient, you can never submit on punitive. So that's what they've done. It's just a very, very, very damaging action taken by folks who, you know, might be a cynical view, but I mean. No one will ever convince me that making it harder for consumers to sue or obtain damages for someone consciously disregarding your safety. And I mean, why would we make it a higher standard? That doesn't seem to help folks. I think something that gets lost on on people who don't deal with punitive damages a lot like we do, it's it's a mindset. It's you're proving a mind state, but through conduct. In other words, Dr. Walden, you know, didn't say, I consciously disregarded the safety of the plaintiff. He didn't say that. He said, here are the prescriptions I wrote. I did them all intentionally. I knew there was a risk to Brian 
and I disregarded the risk, and I knew that my actions could create a high probability of injury to Brian. And he didn't say that all in a row because, of course, right. he wouldn't. It was piecemeal, taken at different parts over the depot, which we can then put together. We started the conversation talking about what good came of the verdict, and a lot of good did come of the verdict, but a lot of bad came from it. There's, there's been a backlash against punitive damages against healthcare providers and against everyone uh, across the board. And that's not a good thing. I've also seen in subsequent cases getting copies of insurance policies where health insurance companies then amended their policies to cover the doctors saying we will not cover prescription of opioid. Oh, malpractice. Exactly. Well, that doesn't do anything for the patient or the doctor. It's just just the doctor isn't going to have insurance for it, which means it doesn't change whether the doctor did. I mean, the doctor still did it. And so all it means is if the patient goes and gets a judgment, it's not going to get paid. So it seems like what's happening is you as attorneys, you're being given a higher and higher standard that you have to reach to just protect a consumer from something that's gone wrong. And at a certain point, it becomes so high that it's unconstitutional. I mean, at a certain point, you, you've eliminated a person's ability to have their day in court. And right. You, so, this, I mean, these changes are going to, they're getting challenged. They're getting challenged at the highest court. And, and, and they should I, be struck I, I personally look forward to doing it. These are the most egregious actors, drug dealers, assaults, batteries, rapes. You're talking about really, really egregious misconduct just going to the wayside because the legislature says it has to be intentional and the person has to admit it it's intentional and it really really hurts people so uh, i look forward to having that wonderful spirited conversation with the appellate courts and the legislature what gives you guys the passion that you've chosen to be on the plaintiff side to fight for the consumer why did you choose that side of law I'm naturally very, very competitive, and I, I want to be on the side of the underdog and feel like I'm overcoming every disadvantage that I can. My family didn't come from a, a great deal of money. Neither of my parents were able to go to college and had to hustle for everything they got and, and did so and instilled a, a strong work ethic. So I, I just always kind of felt like I wanted to represent the little guy who oftentimes doesn't get the right person in their corner trying to help them. Law does run in my family. You know, my, my dad obviously started the firm. You know, I didn't know much about what he did growing up. He kind of, he never forced me to do it uh, because if he did, I probably wouldn't do it. Uh, that's just my natural uh, inclination. But figuring out that, okay, you want to go to law school, become a lawyer, and seeing what, I mean, there's so much you can do with a law degree, and you, you hope to do some good with it, and you can spend your time you know, righting wrongs or defending those wrongs. And you can do a lot of other things, too, that aren't in that little pocket of that adversarial system. But if you want to be an adversary, you want to be an adversary for someone who needs help. The highest calling that I've ever had in my life is representing people who are injured, who are wronged, you know, regardless of their economic background, their race, their political background, their status. I mean, really being able to take that person and go into a courtroom where they are up against the titans of industry and they are on level, equal playing fields, really equaling that out, that is a privilege that, I mean, it's unspeakable. And, you know, I, I hope I have the opportunity to continue to do it for a very long time.
When you took on this case, uh, one of the things you said very early in the story was that you both wanted to make a difference. Tell me about how you think this case did make a difference in America in opioid prescribing practices and to the citizens, to patients. Most of the pressure and the discussion that was being had before this verdict was critical of the pharmaceutical companies, which rightly so. And it really wasn't being talked about as much that, well, hold on, the pharmaceutical companies can't give pills directly to people. So yeah, they were lying and falsely marketing stuff and they wanted to sell as much of their product as possible. But the gateway for that to happen is through a physician's prescription pad. And that really wasn't as much of the conversation, I don't think, before this verdict. And it still didn't get as much media play as, as I think it should have, but, but it spread like wildfire in the medical community. When we are deposing doctors or major healthcare providers in cases we handle since then about this, or opposing experts, we always ask about what seminars they attend, what talks they've given, things they've published. And in almost every case, either their healthcare system had some seminar that was put on within a year after this verdict, oftentimes shortly after, where they talked about the details of this case, what the result was, and hey, here's what we need to do so this doesn't happen. Or the physician himself was going around getting paid to give such talks where we get copies of their PowerPoints, where slide one is Kuhn v. Walden, and they go through the details of the case. So it spread like wildfire in the community. And you know the reasons for it are twofold. Let's try to improve the practice, and hey, this can turn out really poorly, you might have a big judgment you have to pay. So I think internally in the medical community, it it led to a lot more recognition. And then at the same time, there have been criminal matters and a lot of other pressure on the pharmaceutical companies. And by pharmaceutical companies, I mean the ones that manufacture opioids. Everybody at this point has probably heard of Purdue Pharma. But not just them, the insurance companies were a part of it. Pharmacy you know, benefit managers. Phar- I mean, pharmacy benefit managers. Traditional pharmacies, large ones like Walgreens and CVS, they knew all these numbers. They knew the number, like how much it had amped up the number of opioids and hadn't really done anything about it. Insurance companies were paying for opioid pills more than they were for other types of pain treatment. I guess it was cheaper than pain injections or trying physical therapy or trying something else. So it was this huge circular problem amongst all, the entire industry from beginning to end. Um, and there was pressure coming from different places uh, on different parts of that systemic problem. And I think this case really particularly put more pressure on the medical profession directly than anything else was at the time. All those systemic changes are wonderful. They should have happened much earlier. But I think for me, something, a really bright spot that came out of this case was, uh, remember, I mean, representing a person who's addicted to a substance, I mean, the stigma around addiction in this country, even amongst the most educated, there is a stigma. And there has been a stigma around mental illness and uh, addiction for centuries in this country. Having 12 citizens overcome that stigma and recognize it and understand it's a disease and that for people who have been wronged, who are addicted to substances, and that's not a death knell to your life. or It's something you can overcome and actually get some justice from it. I, I, I thought that was a bright, shining light for folks everywhere. 
for a large, large portion of our country's history, we've criminalized the addicted person. And being addicted is the crime. When what we really need to do is look at the, the other side, look at who's, who's doing the addicting. And it's, it's really sad that your drug dealer on the street can get 10 years, but Purdue Farmer ain't not going to do any jail time. Not to open Pandora's box into the inequalities of our justice system, but that, that's a big problem. So giving people who are addicted, you know, through what might be some of their fault, but by the hand of someone else, a seat at the table, opening the courthouse doors for them to vindicate their rights as citizens, that's a big positive, uh, and I hope that continues in the future. But even though that we have had positive changes, 40 states have reported increases in opioid deaths and addictions since the pandemic. It, this problem is not over. Are you still hearing more cases about this? Are there more Brian's out there? Yeah. I mean, we obviously got a lot of phone calls and have reviewed a lot of cases, which we, we look at pretty, pretty sharply to figure out which ones um, we're able to handle and which ones we're not. We have dozens of them, I would say. The problem's not over. I'm not seeing as many, at locally at least, with as high of prescriptions as I was three years ago. I'm really not. And that's a good thing. I think that, you know, unlearning the miseducation of an entire generation, multiple generations of physicians, I, I really, in my opinion, it, it comes down to the medical professionals of the future, the people who grew up with this pandemic, knowing the problems with pharma and the pharma written articles and education and uh, it's going to be up to the universities to really teach against that stuff. And, and you know, that needs to be reined in. Also, I mean, it's important to look at exactly what the drugs are that people are overdosing from. Because, yeah, opioids all generally have the same risks. But a lot of the numbers in 2017 and 2018 and thereafter a lot of the overdose deaths, if you look at exactly what the person was overdosing from, it started to become a lot more common that it was fentanyl. And specifically, there was this influx of like illegal Chinese fentanyl that was getting into the United States that was not prescribed by doctors. And increasingly since 2016, while the problem is not gone, much less of it is overdoses from opioids being prescribed directly by doctors. It is a Herculean effort to, to undo the harm that's been done. A lot of those people who started buying that fentanyl, which wasn't prescribed by a doctor, it's off some truck, were people who had previously been, they got hooked on opioids from getting them from their doctor. And as doctors stopped prescribing it, the market will correct itself. Right. There was a market for it. So criminals started providing it. And that's what I mean by the, the whole, I mean, re-engineering medical education to not just know how to prescribe these things or whether to prescribe them, but also how to treat a whole generation of Americans who are, I mean, millions of people who have substance abuse problems because of this substance. Uh, where do they go? You know, the, the amount of addiction specialists who have primary care offices I mean, not, not very many. And, you know, there's insurance issues. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be with us for a very long time. Hopefully the physicians who we trust with our best interests aren't the ones being our addictors and they're helping us treat our pain in a scientifically supported way without developing a secondary disease, which is addiction, which, no, you know, it, it tears apart families like the Coons. Speaking of the Coons, can you give us an update on Brian? How is he doing and how is he and Michelle? 
he was able to get back surgeries that that helped improve his pain. Uh, I mean, I think he's doing much better, but he wishes that he hadn't lost his family. I mean, that part of his life is is ruined. I mean, it, they weren't able to patch it up, and he lost his wife and his daughter. He sees sometimes, and it's difficult for him. The sinister nature of addiction. I think a large part of why this case was allowed to be tried, you know, they could have settled it at any point or at least talked, asked to settle it, you know, was that they didn't see the harm that it caused to Brian and his family. And, you know, anyone who's dealt with addiction, you know, you can tell when the person is on or off or their aberrant behaviors or the mistrust and finding them and, you know, hiding their pills and having them get into it. I mean, that in a relationship is devastating. I mean, if you can't trust someone to take their medicine, can you trust them with your daughter? I mean, that is a harm. Missouri law supports that being a harm. So, you know, the harm is there. And, you know, that part of their life was ripped apart. So I I think they deserved every single penny uh, that the jury awarded. This case was about trusting your doctor. What message does this give to patients who have that question in their mind about, is my doctor treating me properly? What would you say as attorneys to somebody who's been listening to this case and thought, wow, I wonder if that could have been me? For a lot of patients, they heard about this result and realized this is me. A lot of people, I think it was an eye-opening moment of, oh, maybe I've been trusting my doctor who's been giving me opioids in increasing doses for years and it led to a change or them talking to their doctor or talking to a lawyer about it. And I hope opened a lot of people's eyes and helped a lot of people get off of it, made them realize what was going on. It's totally understandable that you trust and rely upon your doctor. I mean, you you have to trust and rely upon your doctor. But if you have any question about whether you're not sure if the doctor's doing the right thing for you, don't just keep blindly going to the doctor. You can get a second opinion about it. And oftentimes that's a smart thing to do. But when you're in the throes of addiction and your brain is secretly telling you don't do anything that will hinder you getting more pills, you can't see that clearly. And physically telling you because cha- addiction is changing your brain. So it's very hard to get out of that cycle. What I would tell patients is really explore with your doctor the basis for your treatment because you got to hit it early. Because if, if, if you're into it too deep, you're not going to be able to recognize it on your own. Asking someone who is addicted, you know, whether or not they're addicted or control their addiction is, is a, a silly thing to do. So you're relying on this trusting relationship. If your doctor is going to hand these things to you, he better know how to treat you if there's a problem. And being honest and forefront with your, with your doctor as an addict is a very difficult thing to do, which requires the doctor to be able to recognize wh- whether there might be a problem. Outside of which is what the patient is telling you. Because if you're addicted and you want more pills, you're going to lie. You're I mean, going to lie. Who here has been to the doctor and, and had them ask, how, ma- how many drinks do you have a week? And said, oh, just one or two, when you had you know, more like five or six. Imagine doing that with narcotics or the, the medicine that they're prescribing you when you need them. The point is, there are signs. I mean, that's the education that I was talking about. There are telltale signs, early refills, missing pills, Someone took my medicine. I lost them. And is it a difficult conversation to have? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a difficult conversation. But what what does it look like? 
I mean, do we want our doctors just to be handing out scripts or do we want them to, hey, you know, you know, I've been treating you for two years. I think you might have an issue and I want to help you with it rather than I'm cutting you off. Go, you know, get out of the door. Here's a letter. Don't come here again. So, look, you, you got to do your due diligence. And really, before you take these pills, understand that, you know, ask how long am I going to be on them? I'd love to hear have, be in the room for a doctor to answer someone putting them on chronic opioid therapy saying, how long am I going to be on these things? You can't answer. I mean, forever. I mean, forever. This is a lifelong thing. Okay, if I would have known that, maybe I wouldn't have you know, signed up for it. I just want to talk about how Brian Kuhn couldn't have made this change on his own. He needed you two to fight for him in court. What is your role as attorneys in society to help make changes against the larger corporations and industries that cause harm to consumers and patients? I would say that attorneys are oftentimes the only people who are going to institute that change because there are moneyed interests fighting from the other side with a lot more power and money trying to prevent any potential liability from doing dangerous things so that they can recklessly engage in conduct that increase, increases profits without any repercussions. And it is oftentimes the civil justice system and attorneys representing people who've been wronged in that civil justice system that is going to be the only thing that causes change. I think our role, it's not simply to get compensation for our client. I have that conversation with my clients all the time, is what are we doing? Are we doing this so they can write you a check? Or are we doing it to make it better for your community and other people? And So it doesn't happen to the next person. I mean, 99.9% of my clients and the cases we handle here without reservation say this is not about money. This is about making it safer for everyone else, and I don't want this to happen to anybody else, which is, I think, the highest use of the justice system. And being a part of that, I mean, like I said, we can't force them to you know, do things, but we can force them to think about doing things through a judgment. And uh, you know, we've done that in products cases, you know, medical malpractice cases, trucking cases. If your case isn't about something bigger than itself, it's, it's just another case. And uh, I think what we do very well here is making the case about what it should be about, making sure that no one just gets trampled on, regardless of how big or powerful they are. You're going to have a seat at the table, and it's going to be a, a big, important seat. The way our system works is that a money damage is going to make someone pay attention. Oftentimes, it's the only thing that's going to make someone pay attention. I mean, the medical profession knew that the rate at which people were dying or becoming addicted from prescription opioids was increasing dramatically since the late 90s. They knew. They knew. It wasn't until it started being heavily covered and known more generally by the public where there was pressure upon them to change anything. I mean, they knew by 2014, 2015, they knew way before that, actually, that so many people, communities are being destroyed, families are being destroyed, people were dying, and they did nothing to change it, even though in the like mid-2000s, the federal government was going after some of these pharmaceutical companies. But, you know, when Purdue Pharma is making $40 billion a year selling Oxycontin and the federal government hits them with a $600 million fine in 2006. It's like you and me getting a $15 ticket. I mean, are you going to stop? 
No, you're still making tremendous profits from it. So oftentimes the only thing that is going to spur change is if it becomes no longer financially beneficial to continue engaging in the conduct. And it changes the bottom line for them, where continuing to do it is going to cost you money instead of increasing your profits. A good example of it was Johnson & Johnson's talc, talcum powder. They got hit and they got hit and they got hit and eventually they pulled the product. I know we handle uh, vaginal mesh cases. I mean, it's horrifically sad. It's, uh, there was a woman, a mom, who killed herself rather than deal with the pain. And she wrote this long letter, mother of seven, and she wrote this long and said, I'm, you know, last week, my last months were spent doubled over in pain. I cannot get a surgery to get it out. Uh, I would rather than be a burden on you folks and live like this. She took her own life. Where do they go to get the information? Attorneys, the civil justice system, because we get to do discovery and find those products and find that the articles that they were relying on were written by and funded by the company. I mean, those, those are things that there is no regulatory system in place to prevent that conduct. Maybe there should be, there isn't. And until that time, the justice system is the thing that needs to do it. The truth is that the civil justice system is a major part of our market-based capitalistic society. We have a capitalist economic system, right? And a lot of people feel like the market should dictate everything. Well, okay. Here's that part of it. Here's when the market dictates that you should stop engaging in certain types of conduct. You have civil liability for it, and it's going to be handled by attorneys who are representing those people against the larger companies to try to do everything they can to make sure the market dictates that you stop doing it. So I think the civil justice system and tort cases are a huge part of when the market dictates you need to stop engaging in behavior that hurts people. Because if you don't, if, if you don't potentially have to pay a lot of money when you're doing it, the market will dictate that you keep doing it. Tim and Johnny, thank you so much for coming in today to give us a little bit more background on the Kuhn v. Walden case. And I'd like to also thank the Simon Law Firm for allowing us to come in today. Our pleasure, Sue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you also to our listeners for following along the Kuhn v. Walden case and results don't lie. And please subscribe to the podcast. If we have any updates on the case, we'll let you know. Results Don't Lie is a true story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.